Today on Pens Exchange, Narrow Banking and the Financial System. Welcome to Pens Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by James McAndrews. He's an economist specializing in money and banking. He's the CEO and chairman of the board of the Narrow Bank USA Inc., a Connecticut chartered bank whose objective is to provide high-yielding safe deposits to institutional investors. Previously, he was executive vice president and head of the research and statistics group at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, Fernando. The Federal Reserve started paying interest on bank reserves in 2008. Narrow banks are depositor institutions that focus on investing in Federal Reserve deposits and pass on most of the interest accrued to the respective depositors. Dr. James McAndrews, will help us unravel what role narrow banking can play in modern financial systems. Let's start with the basics. What is a bank and what do we need them for? Well, uh, very good question, Fernando. Um, banks, uh, as we learned with the recent Nobel Prize to uh, Douglas Diamond and Phil Dibbig, are um, solutions to a problem that society has. Um, they're institutions that are able to provide to depositors uh, a certain type of liquidity. Depositors can um, provide funds to banks and uh, keep them there safely. And at the same time, uh, they will be able to call on those funds in case the depositor needs to fix their car or uh, travel unexpectedly. <clears throat> or any other purpose the depositor might have to, to retrieve that liquidity that they had uh, dedicated to the bank. At the same time, the bank can then take, that, uh, take those funds provided by depositors and invest them in longer-term projects, things like home mortgages and uh, business lending and uh, other things that uh, you know, make the world go round. So a bank is a, a very um, useful uh, device in society in which it satisfies two needs at the same time, and these needs are seemingly incompatible. Um, on the one hand, society does have a need for uh, long-term projects to be funded, uh, and at the same time, individuals in society have a need to uh, draw on their wealth at, at short notice. And a bank is a thing that can uh, accommodate both these needs. And specifically, what is narrow banking? How is the first from broad banking? Right. Well, thank you. The, what I just described basically was, was a broad bank, a bank that would borrow from depositors, essentially, and lend to the real economy. A narrow bank is something different, and it's not intended to supplant broad banking, but to, um, but to augment it. Uh, a narrow bank is a bank that 
simply invests in a very safe asset. So narrow is intended to convey that its activities are restricted to a very narrow range of activities. So a narrow bank, uh, rather than lending to the real economy and for home mortgages or business lending, as we discussed, it invests in some very safe asset, such as government bonds, or in the case of the narrow bank, uh, which uh, I am affiliated with and founded, it invests in um, reserves at the central bank, which are uh, extremely safe and liquid. So um, the narrow bank highlights the depositor's role and um, the bank, uh, the narrow bank that I'm associated with, its purpose is to provide good competition for, for institutional investors so that their deposits receive a rate of interest that is consistent and, and close to the rate of interest that the government is paying to commercial banks, to broad banks uh, otherwise. One of the critiques against the U.S. financial system is that it relies heavily on shadow banks, mutual market funds, auction rate securities, and more to provide deposits alternatives to investors, most of which experienced runs during the most recent financial crisis of 2007 and 2009. How would narrow banks affect the proliferation of such systematically risky deposits? Well, that's a very um, important topic. And in the United States right now, there's about $17.5 trillion of deposits in commercial banks. Most of those deposits are guaranteed by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, the value of those deposits is insured such that if if the bank in which the depositor has placed his or her funds were to fail, the depositor would have access to those funds, in most cases, the very next day uh, through an, a different bank. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation would um, guarantee the availability of those funds. However, the insurance limit on deposit is currently uh, $250,000. So for larger depositors, institutions, by and large, large businesses, municipalities, asset managers, and other uh, entities that have uh, very large needs, at least on occasion, to place funds on deposit, those funds are not insured by the FDIC. So they're um, less... Uh, protected uh, by the official sector. <clears throat> banks, these broad banks, have various costs uh, that they must incur to conduct this uh, broad banking business that they do. They have high capital requirements, they have insurance, federal deposit insurance assessments, and other costs of, of this type that make it expensive for them to acquire a lot of deposits. So these large depositors are looking at the business proposition of depositing a lot of money in a, in a large broad bank 
And on the one hand, they say, well, my money will not be insured <clears throat> uh, but in the same way that, um, say, a household who deposits in a bank, their money is insured. And at the same time, the bank is not going to be offering me a very high interest rate because the bank has all these costs associated with managing this uh, broad bank, and it will impose some of those costs on its depositors and its large depositors in particular. So the large depositors have, for decades, been seeking alternatives to the broad banking system or, or commercial banking system. And these alternatives are called shadow banks. They're financial institutions that do business outside the structure of being a chartered, regulated, supervised and examined bank. Instead, they are uh, either organized such as a money fund, which is, uh, which is licensed under the Securities and Exchange um, regulations and, and the SEC Act, or they're out, even outside of that regulation. <clears throat> so money market mutual funds are, are a type of shadow bank there are auction rate securities that investment banks um, pioneered uh, in the two, early 2000s. Um, there are collateralized loan obligations, asset-backed commercial paper, and uh, repo transactions, which are all types of shadow banking. And they're all types of alternative deposits. Uh, and they are largely backed by collateral of some sort, and they are seemingly safe, and they're privately safe uh, on a uh, you know, transaction-by-transaction basis. So, for example, in a repo, uh, a lender who's looking for some sort of return will lend their money uh, to, the, to the borrower, and the borrower will provide collateral to the, to the lender. And um, so that, that feels safe, that looks safe, you've got the collateral. Uh, but as we learned in the um, financial crisis, nearly every one of these structures failed systemically. So they're systemically risky in that the value of collateral can collapse, causing um, the um, borrowers to refuse to um, extend credit the next day and um, the auction rate securities can, the auction can fail so that the people who had uh, money extended in that, um, in that investment are caught and, and have to maintain that money in that investment. Uh, money market mutual funds were run, um, asset-backed commercial papers values fell uh, dramatically um, and there was uh, this famous run on repo that Gary Gordon has written about extensively. So all of these shadow banks have this flaw that they are systemically risky. And the Federal Reserve, of course, we have seen um, invented and, and provided a lot of uh, facilities to prevent the um, the runs that were generated in the shadow banking system from metastasizing and, and uh, becoming more 
uh, damaging to the economy. And even in this 2020 dash for cash, as it's called, the Federal Reserve um, created several uh, facilities for corporate bonds and corporate bond funds, uh, a classic shadow banking um, type structure in which people were investing in long-term corporate bonds, or uh, really a banking activity, you might say, um, but they could uh, ha they had the right to withdraw those funds at short notice. So um, those are shadow banks, and really part of the uh, my thinking in in narrow banks and so on is that what we really need is a structure in which these large uninsured depositors who would otherwise go to shadow banks could have a safe depository alternative that would pay a reasonable rate of return um, and that the bank would be within the chartered, regulated, supervised, and examined category of banks. Uh, it would be very transparent and its backing would be uh, very safe and importantly, systemically safe, not just privately safe. Okay, that's for financial regulation. Now let us focus on monetary policy. Nowadays, we could say that the vast majority of money is issued by banks. How would narrow banks affect the transmission of monetary policy? Well, the transmission of monetary policy today uh, is it's a fascinating subject. Uh, and let me go through um, at least a couple of dimensions of the transmission of monetary policy. First and foremost, though, um, many people would believe, and, and Steve Williamson is a person who's written a lot about this as others I, I, that can't come to mind right now. Many people would characterize uh, the Federal Reserve's monetary policy as being that its primary instrument is the interest rate paid on reserve balances. Through this interest rate, uh, that sets a floor on what banks will lend to the society, will lend for these home mortgages and business loans, car loans, and things of that sort. So if I'm able to receive 2.5%, let's say, at the Federal Reserve Bank, and some customer comes to me and say, I'd like to borrow from you, will you lend to me at 2%? The bank says, well, I'm sorry, you'll have to um, pay me more because the federal government through the Federal Reserve Banks is paying me 2.5%. So you'll have to at least pay me, say, 3% or something like that to compensate for the risk. So it's that interest rate that is very important to the uh, transmission of monetary policy. At the same time, what we have found is that interest rate is not as effective in matching the deposit rate that banks pay to their customers. So the, the interest rate that the Fed pays is a floor on borrowing rates for those broad banks, uh, excuse me, for lending rates on those broad banks. They won't lend to anyone at a rate below the rate that the Fed is paying them. But at the same time, their deposit rates lag behind what they're being paid by the Federal Reserve. So because of their costs, uh, these, these 
insurance assessments and, and capital costs, sometimes called balance sheet costs, and also because of competitive conditions in the market for deposits. The banks don't remunerate deposits at the same rate they're paid by the federal government uh, in this interest on reserve balances. So there's this is a flaw in the implementation of monetary policy. Because if that rate were passed through to depositors more surely and with more fidelity, then the interest rate that would be set by the Federal Reserve would not have to go as high because the rates depositors would get would uh, more quickly match the rate paid by the government. The Federal Reserve understands this and they created a facility called the Overnight Reverse Repurchase Agreement Facility or the ONRRP. Uh, that facility gives the privilege to about 160 money market mutual funds and broker dealers, non-banks, to essentially deposit at the Federal Reserve overnight. And they can deposit at a rate that's 10 basis points or one-tenth of 1% 1 below the rate that the Federal Reserve pays to commercial banks. So this is very similar to a narrow bank. This is essentially what a narrow bank would do. This is simply a public narrow bank, one offered by the Federal Reserve. Now, this narrow bank is set up legally as a repo. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, essentially what is being offered is that these money market mutual funds and broker dealers can place funds up to $160 billion each into the Fed overnight and receive an interest rate that's just one-tenth of a percentage point below the rate that the Fed is paying commercial banks. So that helps reduce the this flaw in monetary policy implementation where deposit rates fall well below the rate paid by the government to banks uh, because of the overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility, which now has $2.5 trillion on deposit there, those rates are coming closer to the rate of interest on uh, reserve balances. Now, narrow banks would do the same thing only in the private sector. A narrow bank would uh, a narrow bank of the design of TNB, uh, the bank that uh, I founded with colleagues and designed, that bank would invest all the proceeds from its deposit in reserve balances. It would receive this rate of interest on reserve balances. And then it would pay to depositors a rate of interest that would be very close to the rate of interest on reserve balances. So it would play the same role as the overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility. And in that way, it would help, it would assist uh, the, the implementation of monetary policy. So it will help. Okay, now what about other macroeconomic effects? 
So what would be the competition from narrow banks affect broad banks in generally? For example, would narrow banks lead to fewer loans made by broad banks? That's a very good question. They, and, and the answer is that narrow banks would not lead to fewer loans by broad banks. And uh, a, there can be a very simple demonstration of this. As I was mentioning earlier, the decision by a broad bank to make a loan is based on its cost of attracting funds. And it can uh, attract funds from depositors or from the um, bond market. It can issue uh, various types of uh, debt to attract funds. So, um, and by and large, its deposit rate is well below uh, the rate of interest on reserve balances. So suppose its deposit rate right now is 0.4%, which is you know, fairly realistic for its combined deposits to retail depositors and wholesale depositors. So again, this is the $17.5 trillion that goes into the banking system. It's receiving just a small fraction of what banks are being paid by the federal government on, on their reserves. They could also go out to the market and issue bonds. And suppose that they can issue bonds, let's say, at 3.6% at right now. And at the same time, they can make loans or they can buy securities uh, for their assets. Now, their loans right now, suppose their loans are priced at, at 4%. And so the question is, if the overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility were expanded beyond that 160 lucky firms that can access it now, or if narrow banks were granted accounts at uh, Federal Reserve banks, what would happen to the amount of lending by banks? Well, what would happen, uh, one would expect, is that the deposit rate that banks would need to pay to attract funds would go up a little bit. Let's say from 0.4% to 0.8% or something. They'd double their deposit rate. And by and large, depositors will stick with their banks. And the reason is, first of all, the, the, the narrow bank does not even, uh, it, it would only be, a, and only institutions are eligible to deposit at narrow banks so it doesn't compete with retail depositors. And the institutional depositors have many reasons to stay in their own bank. They have payment relationships with the bank, custodial relationships with the bank, and so on. The narrow bank uh, would not conduct payments. It would not do custody or anything else. It's simply uh, to intermediate the safety and earnings on reserve balances. So a customer is looking at that business proposition and say, well, I can get some more money at the narrow bank, but on the other hand, then I'd have to move it back and to do my payments and, and custody and so on. They go to their banker and say, why don't you make up some of the difference between yourself and the narrow bank? And the bank says, okay, I'll give you a few more uh, tenths of a percent. So I, the deposit rate rises from 0.4 to 0.8. Will the bank still make the loan that earns the bank 4%? Yes, the loan is not affected. 
because it's still a profitable loan. So the only macroeconomic effect of narrow banks of the type uh, that we're discussing, like the TNB, is that it would reduce uh, the earnings of banks. It would reduce the the earnings going to shareholders and to bank management through their bonuses and so on. It would not affect the bank's economic activity of lending because the the interest rate would not would never rise sufficiently high to dis, to displace a loan. Um, you know, TNB it would be earning the interest on reserve balances and would be paying something less than the interest on reserve balances to its customers, less but close to the interest on reserve balances. But banks, as we said earlier, only make loans at rates above the interest rate on reserve balances. So um, banks can always make those loans profitably uh, even with the competition from a narrow bank. So um, narrow banks, um, this is something that's often um, misunderstood. People think that uh, the whole economy or something will just run into a narrow bank. Well, first of all, you know, retail depositors aren't even eligible to go into a narrow bank where a narrow bank to exist. Uh, and secondly, um, the interest rate offered by a narrow bank is limited by the rate of interest on reserve balances. Uh, so it would operate very much like the overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility is operating now, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, that has two and a half trillion dollars in it, quite a substantial portion, for example, of the total of, of deposits in the nation, which are 17 and a half trillion. And yet, uh, I don't think there's been a single story or concern uh, voiced by anyone that bank lending has been uh, disrupted because of the presence of those $2.5 trillion invested at the Federal Reserve in overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility balances. Uh, that's something that's not even a concern. And it's the same, it would be the exact same way for narrow banks. Some famous economists of the past, like Irving Fisher, Henry Simons, Milton Friedman, among others, have at different times argued for outlawing broad banking. So how does the idea of adding narrow bank to the existing broad banking system compare to those 1930s ideas of outlawing broad banking? Well, that's a fascinating question. The, the Chicago plan um, was a plan to um, combat the uh, Great Depression in the 1930s. And there were a number of uh, great thinkers at the uh, University of Chicago, uh, economists who came up with this plan and therefore it, it took on the name the Chicago plan. And that plan had uh, as one of its elements that a new type of deposit bank with 100% reserves in the forms of notes and deposits at the Federal Reserve Banks would be created. But that was only one portion of that plan. The other portions of the plan were um, the uh, 
federal ownership of all Federal Reserve Banks, um, exclusive congressional powers to grant charters for deposit banking, suspension of all powers of existing corporations to engage in deposit banking within two years, and uh, replacement of private bank credit with Federal Reserve Bank credit. So you can imagine that was an extraordinarily radical plan in which the federal government would make all loans, would make all lending decisions. If you wanted to get a car, you would have to go to the federal government to get a car. You couldn't go to your bank. Um, if you wanted to uh, have a credit card, you'd have to go to the federal government and, and so on. So that was a very radical plan. And they had a they had a belief uh, that it was money creation somehow that that caused the uh, Great Depression, uh, particularly the lack of money creation, and that money creation was um, was too variable because it was associated with banking. The in the in the United States, money creation is delegated to banks to commercial banks. And they felt that because of booms and busts in business cycles, that during a bust as we had in the Great Depression, uh, money was destroyed at too great a rate. And the um, that had that had spillover harms to the macro economy. So their solution was extremely radical. They said, look, well, let's get rid of the banks. And um, people think of that plan when they think of narrow banks and they say, well, that plan wasn't adopted, so let's not adopt narrow banks. But narrow banks, as you can tell, were only a very small part of that plan, really, because they felt that some people had to have some sort of deposits. So they came up with the idea of narrow banks. But today the shoe is on the other foot. It's sort of uh, people are outlawing narrow banks. No one's suggesting that broad banks be outlawed today, uh, and but they are preventing narrow banks from augmenting our financial system. And the narrow bank's purpose today is very different from what the progenitors of the Chicago plan had in mind, which was to, uh, you know, completely reorganize the financial system of the United States. Um, the narrow bank here is to provide competition to broad banks and to improve uh, depositors' well-being by offering depositors a safe, uh, systemically safe deposit at a good interest rate. And so really the narrow bank today, its, its purpose is twofold, to provide some sort of competition to shadow banks by providing a systemically safe deposit facility and to provide some sort of competition to broad banks, but only insofar as their deposit rate is too low, not to compete on product categories or uh, anything like that. The narrow bank would not engage in other types of banking. It would simply intermediate the safety and earnings on reserve balances. So in this sense, the narrow bank is very, uh, a very modest uh, addition to uh, the current financial system. 
and again, plays the role that the Federal Reserve's own facility, the overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility, is playing today. There are many things happening at parallel to the events that we are discussing right now. So I would like to ask you in general, what are your perspectives on the risk and opportunities created by some of these developments? For example, like the emergence of private cryptocurrencies. Well, I'm not a, an expert in uh, cryptocurrencies uh, to speak of, but um, I have been, of course, a, a uh, keen follower of the um, of the events surrounding cryptocurrencies. It's been it's been a fascinating uh, development in computing, um, and. Uh, I would call them crypto assets. Uh, the cryptographic um, discoveries that proof of work and now proof of stake can create unique digital um, locations or assets uh, is, uh, you know, quite a quite a uh, important uh, computer science uh, result, and I think that we have. Uh, by no means uh, fully seen how the how the whole tale plays out. Um, the important development in um, this area, as regards finance, goes I think with uh, the development of what are called uh, stable coins, and these are uh, again a shadow bank. Uh, some of them you would call a dark shadow bank. And by dark, I mean a shadow bank that uh, is opaque and um, whose uh, workings are oftentimes manipulated by insiders <clears throat> and so on. Um, but these dark shadow banks have brought to the uh, this crypto asset field, uh, a, a sense of finance, a sense of um, a way to uh, move between crypto assets of different types uh, with an intermediary uh, currency, you might say, or intermediary asset called a stablecoin. And that's been a fascinating uh, development as well, because it uh, brings... Um, basic notions of banking and financial regulation that uh, we have been dealing with since, uh, you know, the early, it was for hundreds of years, uh, to, to this new area of crypto assets. And I don't think that we are anywhere close to having a regulatory structure that uh, is appropriate for, uh, for these uh, uh you know, stablecoin providers uh, and uh, even the crypto assets as well. To end our discussion, I want to ask you your perspectives on the future, both of narrow banking in particular, but also about the world's financial system in general in the long run. So we could say that the 20th century was more or less the world of national currencies and central banks. How do you envision the 21st century? I uh, try not to envision <laughs> very far in the future. <laughs> I think that narrow banks are a uh, 
part of the future, though. I, I do think that narrow banks essentially are inevitable um, because we have learned that the payment of interest on reserves, which is, I think, one ha which has been one of the uh, truly um, durable and important developments in central banking in, in my lifetime, uh, that has been shown to uh, need support from below, as we've talked about earlier, that deposit rates don't rise up to meet the rate of interest that the government pays. And I think it's simply intolerable in a democracy that uh, payments should go to some privileged parties such as broad banks and not be passed on to other people in society such as depositors. And the Federal Reserve has seen this exactly as well and has created this overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility uh, for that purpose to get at least some greater uh, dissemination of its interest to the public. But I think um, a more durable solution is simply to have to allow narrow banks of the type of TMB and then um, the central banks uh, can be sure that that the public will enjoy this flow of funds that comes from uh, taxpayer resources to um, uh, to support monetary policy again this flow of funds is simply to create an interest rate in society. So the better we can create that interest rate, uh, the better off we'll be. That's why I am a long-term believer in narrow banks. I think narrow banks will be part of the solution. It's, it's possible that there would be administrative narrow banks. Um, I, I think that would be inferior to uh, private narrow banks. Regarding the long-term future of our monetary systems and so on, I, I see a true, um, uh, you know, there, I, I don't see a change from our current national currency uh, focused uh, systems. I think the Euro is a, is a incredible experiment in a multi-country currency. Um, and I think that the authorities in Europe have done a, uh, you know, fabulous job in uh, promulgating that currency and uh, developing a, a whole new way of conducting monetary policy cross-country. I don't believe these uh, cyber assets um, in, you know, in the near future uh, are... Uh, a threat to dethrone national currencies. So I see uh, nations as still needing this very important tool of monetary policy to, um, to uh, assist in the stabilization of their macroeconomies. And uh, nations have very broad powers to um, maintain their national currencies. And I, I think that um, will be true. It's true today, and I think it will be true quite far into the future. So I'm, um, while I think that things may look very different in, in the longer run, I think national currencies are a real building block of, uh, of our monetary system. 
that we can be sure will be with us for a long time. Well, thank you, James. It has been great talking to you about these topics. Thank you, Fernando. I really enjoyed it. How do we organize and regulate our financial system is one of the most important economic aspects of the modern world. The payment of interest on reserves by central banks has been one of the latest developments that challenges our understanding of how our economy works and, perhaps even more importantly, how it should work. Narrow banking arises out of the need to rethink how to adapt better to these new circumstances. has been Pence Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.